welcome to our podcast series. The title of the series is Listen to the Experts, Targeted Temperature Management. And uh, in this podcast, this is our third, we usually talk about some of the uh, current questions and challenges in the area of targeted temperature management and therapeutic hypothermia. Uh, my name is Dalton Dietrich, and I'm at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. And first, uh, let me thank Zoll for supporting this uh, podcast series. So uh, today we're really talking about the importance of utilizing uh, targeted temperature management in the hospital setting. In previous podcasts, we've talked a little bit about um, the uh, rationale for targeted temperature management, what type of pathomechanisms are we targeting? We've also talked a little bit about some of the recent clinical trials, um, the TTM1 and the TTM2, and how it's that kind of, in some ways, um, informed uh, researchers and clinicians, but also complicated a little bit of uh, the field of targeted temperature management. So today, I'm really pleased to, um, to welcome two thought leaders uh, in the area of targeted temperature management. Um, these individuals have participated in uh, several of our um, Chilling at the Beach meetings, and uh, thank you for that as well. We had a big successful one this year. And uh, today we have uh, uh, Mr. David uh, Hillebrandt. Uh, David is an associate director, associate director of clinical operations at the Smith Heart Institute and Cedar Sinai Hospital. And uh, Michael uh, David has been really uh, informative in terms of initiating um, targeted temperature management uh, programs in various different uh, hospitals. I mean, and so he is an authority of not only um, uh, uh, conducting uh, therapeutic hypothermia and targeted temperature management, also teaching people and showing people how to initiate these, these, um, these protocols. So um, David, thank you very much for being here today. Uh, good afternoon, and thank you for inviting me. Happy to be here. Great, and then uh, Michael Kurse. Uh, Michael is Associate Professor, uh, Department of Emergency Medicine and Co-Director at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, uh, for the therapeutic hypothermia program. So uh, Michael uh, is on the front lines also using therapeutic hypothermia. And, uh, and so I think this should be a very interesting um, talk today about uh, these different viewpoints. So just starting off then, uh, gentlemen, um, thank you again for, for being here. Um, so for the different perspective in terms of using uh, therapeutic hypothermia, in terms of the impact of uh, clinical practice. So uh, David, you can start us off. What's How important is it to use targeted temperature management in your patient population? How easy is it? And uh, what are the challenges you face every day? Well, thank you for that question. It's important, very important. I, I think what we have been able to define through all these different studies that have come out and, and now uh, things seem to be changing and there's uh, more conversation ever since TTM2 came out. But I think the one thing that we do know is that temperature management in the post-cardiac arrest setting is important and that we do control temperatures. Uh, whether or not you are a believer in going down to 33 or just preventing fever itself, I think one of the things that all of these studies has proven that a comprehensive approach, not only managing the temperature, but following guidelines for oxygenation and end tidal CO2s and electrolytes and, and neuroprognostication, that alone as a big bundle is helping improve outcomes. So it's, it's extremely important. Very good. Thank you. Uh, Michael, your perspective? 
Yeah, I just like to echo what David says. Um, I think uh, in the modern, uh, the contemporary context, we know two things are important. One, whatever method you you use to control temperature, the temperature you choose seems to be less important than the accuracy and precision with which you control it. Right. So whether uh, we can have an academic debate about 33 or 36 or fever suppression or uh, whatever we'd like to choose, but what is very clear is that you have to pick a temperature and it has to be actively managed with some precision. Um, Wild swings in, in the temperature are detrimental to the patient. Number two, what I think is also very clear from the contemporary literature is that what David describes as the bundle of care is absolutely essential to maximizing the outcome from patients post-cardiac arrest. These patients, the the vast majority of, of patients who get a pulse back and then subsequently die, die from brain injury, right? The way we know how to, to maximize their outcome from brain injury is to manage their temperature and do the rest of the bundle, right? Uh, as David describes, it's about managing the electrolytes. It's about oxygen and, and volume limit, limiting ventilation. It's about optimizing their hemodynamics. It's about neuroprogno- uh, holding off on neuroprognostication and using a multimodal approach. These guidelines-driven, evidence-driven best practices is really what, what, what drives this field and what ensures the best outcomes for these patients going forward. So I think these are very important concepts that, uh, yes, targeted temperature management is one important variable that we have to pay attention to, but there's so many others that really um, maximize the chances of good outcome in our patient population. So so David, getting back to introducing uh, targeted temperature management protocols in a hospital setting, how easy, it, easy it, is it, how easy is it to initiate these on top of everything else that uh, Michael and yourself had just described? You know, the, the ease really kind of depends on the, the temperature that is, is chosen. And it's a little bit more aggressive if you choose a lower temperature initially. Um, But I think the important thing is that you have standard protocols and standard duties for everybody um, to get the process going on top of everything else that comes along so everybody knows what they need to do. You know, after TTM2, there may be a lot of people that choose not to go down to 33 anymore. However, we need to realize that TTM2 didn't show that 33 was harmful. And if your facility does choose to go to 33, the big question still that we need to answer is, if we get them to 33 faster, will they have better outcomes? And the thought in animal studies is yes. So if your facility does choose 33, it's a little bit more difficult, but it's also easy if you have standard protocols in place so that you can rapidly get those te- those patients down to that 33 degree temperature. So I think that's a very important concept. So what are the protocols in your practice, Michael, for example, 
that tells you if a particular patient needs to go to 36 degrees or 35 degrees or 33 degrees? How do you determine that in a protocol once it's all set up and it's ongoing? So uh, I, my own personal bias, we've been a 33 shop since uh, 07 and, and we take everybody to 33 and, um, and, and we hold you there. Um, and as David describes, there are, there are pluses and minuses for each one of these temperatures, just uh, in broad swaths, right? Uh, for example, um, 33 is uh, deeper. Uh, it takes longer to get there and longer to come up. Uh, and there are a lot, there are physiologic changes that have to be managed at 33. The most common one I discuss is like heparin dosing has to be adjusted at 33 degrees. On the flip side, if you're going to pick, say, for example, 36, your patient may shiver the entire time and require more paralytics or, or more sedation to stay at 36. And that may be more of a struggle to manage at, at 36. While you may not have to deal with you know, the depth or the duration or adjusting some other physiologic parameters, you may have to deal with the downside that comes with more sedation or more uh, neuromuscular blockade. I think each of these temperatures has uh, unique pluses and minuses. And my hope is, as our field progresses, what we're able to do is tailor with some precision the duration and depth of your target temperature management to your insult, right? So the, the guys at Pittsburgh take a very unique approach where based upon how brain injured they, uh, a patient is following cardiac arrest um, and how hemodynamically unstable they are, um, they choose their temperature based on, on that insult rather than um, uh, a set protocol. What I imagine 10 years from now is that we're going to use precision medicine to tailor this to each individual patient, or at least that would be my hope. Yeah, I think that is the future of some type of biomarker or some type of strategy where you can actually target the temperature and other therapeutic interventions, including drug treatment to some biomarkers. So, so David, you just heard Michael's response in, in your facility. Are you a, a 33 or are you variable or do you adjust it according to, again, the status of the uh, individual? Um, right now, it's, it's dependent on the circumstances surrounding the arrest. However, you know, there is some other uh, targeted temperature management uh, trials going on in the United States right now in which we're participating in. And one of them is currently the ice cap trial. Mm -hmm. And with that one, we need to get patients under at or under 34 degrees within four hours of the arrest. Um, so if uh, we do if patients do qualify for that trial and we can get consent, um, then we have a rather aggressive protocol because we need to get those patients down down at to 34 or lower um, within within that four hour time window. So I think uh, something that I've been um, I think I've been in the hypothermia field now for, about 30 years, and uh, what I've really been impressed with is um, that it's a technology driven in many ways now in terms of the companies coming out and new technologies to cool and things like that. And, and the list goes on and on, systemic cooling, you know, local 
brain cooling, all kinds of things are coming out. And uh, we will just find out exactly how helpful they are in the, in the clinic. But uh, one of the things that people, you know, talk about, and, and Michael's already mentioned that, you know, making sure we can hit our marks, make sure that it's, it's very consistent temperature level, not being highly variable and things like that. So um, what, what are you using in your, your hospital setting, setting to cool uh, patients? Is it different types of technologies to use based on the patient? Uh, we talked about cooling very quickly. We talked about being very consistent. And of course, we know that we also have to critically uh, control the rewarming phase. So what type of technology do you use? Are there different technologies? Do you have one favorite versus the other? Those types of questions I would ask. So we do use both surface cooling methods and intravascular, um, intravascular cooling. I think that you know, when you talk and mention about all the technology that's out there for cooling patients right now, that is what I find can overwhelm most hospitals initially because the cardiac arrest comes in that ER. The ER, the ER guys are, you know, they're worrying about oxygenation. They're worrying about labs. They're talking to cardiology. They're assessing EKGs. They're trying to determine if the patient needs to go to the cath lab. And then if they do have to go to the cath lab because they're showing STEMI on EKG, the last thing a cath lab team is worried about is, is getting, getting that patient cold because they're so brain focused on getting that artery open because time is muscle as well. But if you're going to go to that 33 degrees, you don't have to worry about that technology initially. Just get that patient paralyzed so they don't shiver and cover them in ice. Not those chemical packs, but get those big plastic patient belonging bags, fill them full of ice, get them around the neck, get them up in the armpits, get them down into the groins, get them over the chest and the belly and get that process started. Then you don't have a STEMI team that's trying to get an artery open, that's also mm -hmm. trying to prep a machine to either put on surface cooling or initiate intravascular cooling, because then you've at least got the process started. You're not delaying the initiation. Then after the case is done and everybody's blood pressure comes down, then you've got the time in the hands to get the actual technology working for you. Yeah, so uh, I've been, uh, uh, I've tried one of just about everything on the market um, uh, since about 07. And uh, the most elegant solution and the one that we predominantly go with is an intravascular solution. Um, I, I like it because uh, uh, it's elegant. Um, it's precise to uh, 0.1 degrees Celsius. And uh, while David spoke of the um, beauty of it in terms of having to go to the cath lab and, and, and the initial phase. And I agree with everything David said. Um, the beauty of an intravascular solution is really in the ICU um, where uh, the nursing burden drops dramatically in comparison to the other solutions that are on the market. So I can talk at, at length about precision and management, but I, I think really where it excels is in the nursing burden. Um, uh, a, a intravascular solution can take one of these patients who um, might be uh, initially uh, even two to one in the ICU, depending on how unstable they are, and drop that nursing burden rather significantly. You don't have to worry about 
skin checks. You don't have to worry about uh, gross excursions with the temperature. Um, It's precise. And it, and frankly, it solves a bunch of other problems that you'd otherwise have, which is placing lines and tubes and such. And so to that end, while it requires uh, a not insignificant investment on the upfront, right? I mean, a, a physician has to put that, that line in. What we find is that the return on investment down the line days later um, is more than worth the initial 30 minutes to put the line in. Um, in terms of the overall care of uh, the post-arrest patient. Yeah, and I would absolutely, absolutely agree with that, you know, from a, from a nursing perspective, that if that patient goes to the cath lab afterwards, you get that in. Um, but intravascular method, echoing Michael, is, is just very, very precise. You take them down quickly, and then when you hit that temperature, it instantly can manage and keep at that temperature. It's not going to take them down even lower. It's not going to fluctuate back and forth. But the nicest thing is, you know, from a nursing perspective too, is, is then you've, you've got a central line and what cardiac arrest patient, what post cardiac arrest patient nowadays doesn't have a central line placed in them. So it's done. And now you've got three ports to deliver medications from as well. So it's a, you know, it's all right there for you. It really does reduce the burden. Yeah, we we call it um, being accessorized for their ICU stay, um, right? Because, I mean, which one of these patients isn't going to need an A-line? You're not going to need a central line, uh, right? So they're going to need all the bits, Yep. right? You know, this is two birds with one stone. And so to the extent that I can streamline their trip to the ICU and then optimize their care uh, one to five days out, that, that, that's an easy exchange for me. So both David and Michael, tell me about the interactions between the nurses and the doctors. Are everybody on the same page? Sometimes do you have to speak up and disagree with each other and things of this nature in terms of the um, how to treat a patient uh, and some of the things we've talked about already today? Well, yeah, I'm just smiling because I don't think the physicians here get any any flack from the nurses. They they follow, you know, the temperature guidance that the physicians give them. Um, but I am very, very biased of, 30, of 33 degrees. So if it's not 33 degrees, they might be hearing from me. So the, the, my poor docs are probably just having to deal with me and, and not the actual nursing staff that's in the ICUs with these patients. Yeah, no, so um, uh, so we're all on the same page and, and that comes at UAB and that comes from uh, a legacy of um, uh, following the same protocol and then the nurses being able to clearly see the results um, when these folks literally walk out of the hospital, right? So, so uh, I don't, for one moment, suggest that there's not a lot, there's not a lot of additional nursing burden or, or work that target temperature management applies. I mean, it is. It's another thing among all of the other critical care that has to occur. Um, and and frankly, as a doc, like I, I'm, I'm the first one to acknowledge that I'll round and I'll make some decisions and I'll probably be at the bedside for with my new patients for for an hour. And then, you know, frankly, I I walk away, um, and it's my nursing staff that really does the heavy lifting for for the next 23 hours until I round again, unless you know there's a a phone call that needs to be made or we need to change course in the middle of the night. Um, And so it's very important that if they're going to do the heavy lifting, that we're all on the same page. 
And so to the extent that we can uh, engage uh, our nursing colleagues and really a multidisciplinary approach, uh, uh, I think of the chaplaincy, I think of PT, OT, nutrition, our respiratory therapists, because we make some changes to the vent. The more we can engage everyone and get everyone on the same page, the better off, the easier it is to optimize these patients' care. And, you know, Dr. Kurz, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think that, you know, for the most part, and, and I could be wrong in saying this, but, you know, seven, eight years ago when I was out lecturing at a lot of hospitals and helping them with their program, my main message was you have to have a multidisciplinary team committee yeah. And you have to have these protocols in place so that if A happens, B happens and, and everything is followed because a lot of places weren't doing that initially. And it does really help to have those protocols in place and, and a standard of care and a, a standard practice, no matter what your temperature, what your temperature goal is. I think that there are some things that we are finding out that are important right in the beginning to be addressed that sometimes get overlooked when you talk about the management of the care. Because we're not just talking about cooling here either. You know, as Dr. Kurz had mentioned, you've got electrolytes that you've got to deal with if you go down down to 33. In some cases, you have bradycardia. You may have more shivering while you're getting through that threshold that you got to deal with. But we also know that hyperoxygenation Oh, yeah. do good for these patients either. And when you stop and think for a moment, a patient comes into the ER via ambulance, they're being bagged by 100% O2. They get put on a portable ventilator, they're 100% O2. They go upstairs to the cath lab emergently, they're on 100% O2. And three or four hours later, when they make it to the ICU, you see the PO2 is four or 500. And we know that that's not good. So we try to drill fast cooling and stopping and pausing and making sure that the patient's not receiving 100% FiO2 unless they absolutely need it, because yeah. that, that's also going to most likely contribute to recovery as well. But I think the important thing also when uh, you talk about a multidisciplinary team, the respiratory therapists, the physical therapists, the chaplains and everybody, I think it's important when you do have a patient that, that does make it through this and comes out alive with neuro intact, that not everybody's 100% back to normal when they leave the hospital. And that neuropsych testing and neuropsych therapy is also part of the recovery after they are discharged from the hospital. Yeah, David, I couldn't echo that more. Um, you know, so I was really excited to see the survivorship statement from. Um, the American Heart Association, it kind of got buried because it came out in February of 2020 and we were all in the throes of the emerging pandemic. And so I don't know that it got a whole lot of play, but you know, the American Heart Association, much to your point, the American Heart Association released a statement of some 70 pages that describes the course of a, a post-cardiac arrest patient's first year, right? And it involves... PT and OT and the chaplaincy and the neuropsych testing and the cognitive testing and the placement and then the care of the caregivers, right? Because 
It's never, uh, a cardiac arrest doesn't just happen to the patient. Cardiac arrest, ha- it's like a stroke, right? The patient doesn't just have a stroke. Their whole family and everybody who knows them has a stroke. It's the same thing for cardiac arrest, right? And so similar to MI, to, to heart attacks, to, to myocardial infarction, and similar to stroke, I was very excited to see the Heart Association, to Kelly Sawyer, actually, who's a survivor herself, first author of that paper on survivorship. It describes these things that our, our survivors, now that we have a critical mass of them, need following their hospitalization as they go home. That it's that absolutely is. essential that that sixth link to the chain of survival exists. Yeah, it's, it, it's amazing work that that came out. And it's unfortunate that it took so long to come out because, you know, when I was in Minneapolis around that 2008 to 2015 time, this was being recognized with patients. And we were developing uh, protocols for neuropsych testing, neuropsych follow-up, family follow-up, because... I mean, let's face it, some of these patients that survive and they walk out of the hospital, they're going to do good and improve more each and every day. But families are dealing with, you know, patients that have memory problems initially, or maybe even slight personality changes. And I hate to say it, but um, the institution I was at before Los Angeles we were a huge, huge center of receiving post-cardiac arrest patient transfers from other hospitals. So we were doing 100 or more of these a year. And in follow-up, I was seeing patients that their spouses or their partners were leaving them because they, they couldn't handle the changes in personality or the difficulties with memory and, until they were able to see that that actually was going to improve and will improve over time in a lot of these people. So I know that this is getting a little off, Dalton, on the actual TTM, but I, I think it's something that also needs to be discussed and recognized too as well, because it's it's very traumatic for the patient and everybody else too. Yeah, it's a, it's a holistic uh, issue that we have to deal with. And of course, uh, I'm in a department of neurological surgery, and we're always stressing, oh, the surgery was very successful, but what does the patient look like, you know, six months, a year after, and right. how can we improve um, uh, that that long-term outcome. So I think we all agree uh, the importance of uh, high-quality um, targeted temperature management. You're both um, leaders in this field and, and moving this forward. There's a lot of questions we have to uh, continue to address. One, the last question has to do the impact on the hospital. Exactly, in terms of all hospitals have business plans and things of that nature. We, you know, the equipment we talked about, the, uh, the staff burden we talked about, uh, how do you address this uh, when maybe it's brought up to you that uh, maybe we're, you know, some of this, uh, these uh, studies, these these protocols are, are costing us a lot of money. Maybe we need additional people to carry out these uh, protocols. Do you do you ever have to deal with that in your everyday activities? I think that since we've been doing TTM for so long now, it, it's not so much of an issue because first and foremost, you know, nobody. I mean, face it, we all worry about costs in healthcare, but nobody wants to ever have to bring up the discussion or put a price on what we should or should not be doing when a, when a patient has a potential for, for a better outcome, especially if that patient does survive and then is, is still in the health system for further up care. Um, I think that now that TTM has gotten more precise, 
the amount of resources are a little bit more streamlined now and Mm -hmm. everybody understands their role. But whether or not you do TTM or not, and whether you do 33 or 36, or whether you just prevent them from going over 37.5, what has been established in the in the community is unless these patients are declared, you know, brain dead, there is a, a standard 72 hours at the minimum where these patients still should be hospitalized and, and no decisions made before you do any neuroprognostication. Those patients are dedicated to your hospital, all of them across the board for, for at least those those first 72 hours. Yeah, uh, David, you have much more experience with, um, you know, instituting these programs than I do. Uh, At my shop, nobody really wants to have the conversation about cost. Uh, Nobody really wants to have the the conversation about cost effectiveness. But our science would seem to suggest that, in fact, uh, providing TTM is per year saved more cost effective than other common cardiovascular interventions that we frankly take for granted right? Like we assume uh, you're going to get PCI. We assume, at least at my shop, you know, if you're eligible for an LVAD, we're going to put you on the list for an LVAD as, as either destination or bridge therapy. We assume folks who are eligible for a transplant will get listed. Um, when, we, when we talk about cardiovascular interventions and their, their cost effectiveness per year of life saved, frankly, TTM is pretty cost effective. <laughs> and it's uh, more cost effective than many common procedures that we take for granted that provide you universally like PCI. To that end, I would also say to hospitals that are concerned about the value that comes with putting out the resources and personnel for a program like this, what we've seen in Alabama is uh, we have a well-documented survival rate during ROC, um, which is the Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium. It was a, a very large multi-center trial that was done in the early 2000s of 3%. We can demonstrate very clearly at at UAB that our survival rate, if you make it to us at UAB, is tenfold higher, right? So if if you make it to UAB and you make it on service, your survival rate is tenfold higher. So we routinely turn out a survival rate that's greater than 33%. And if that's the case, these are patients, as David describes, that are, are tied into the system. These are folks who will need evaluation for first or, or either stage one or stage two cath. Many of them are going to need an ICD, uh, internal defibrillator. And the return on investment that we see from the improved survival from those patients who are then brought into the system more than pays for the program. In fact, it's a, it's a net positive to the health system. And not only that, you know, I say this, that that's a very good point. And I say this cautiously because at the top of my head, I can't cite any data, but I think the three of us can agree that TTM does improve neurological outcomes. And if you have a patient that you don't do TTM on because you're worried about costs, they still might survive, but have deeper neurological injuries and, and be more expensive to the facility, to the patient, to everybody involved yeah. due to all the, all the uh, 
additional care that they're going to need on top of those versus those that uh, survive and have great neurological outcomes. Great points. All great points. Well, thank you both very much. I'd like to thank uh, again, David Hillebrandt, Associate Director um, at the uh, Smith Hart Institute in Cedars-Sinai and Michael Kurtz, Associate Professor, Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, two experts in the field. And I, I hope everyone enjoyed uh, this podcast. Also again, thanks Zoll for supporting this series of podcasts. Again, my name is Dalton Dietrich and uh, until I see you again, Stay cool. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.